to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, January 29th, 2024, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero, and this week we're talking about a lacustrine lunker, a spectacular salvalinid. It's the lake trout. And we are very happy to have Larry Miller with us from our Allegheny National Fish Hatchery. So very warm welcome to you. Hi, pleasure to be here. You don't happen to own a bunch of car dealerships in the Utah Jazz, do you? No. No, uh, different Larry Miller, I guess. Yeah, no, there's a couple of us around. Okay, Larry, for folks out there listening who haven't come across this fish before, we'd love if you could help visualize what it would be like to have a lake trout from the Great Lakes in your hands. What size is it? What's the texture? What are some distinguishing characteristics? Sure, sure. It's kind of almost like a slate color, and it's got a lot of small round spots, and its fins oftentimes will be orangish or yellowish in color, and they oftentimes are tipped with a little bit of white on the end. They can get somewhat colorful. They actually have some stages that look more like brook trout. It's in the char family. It's actually related to brook trout, which is much smaller and lives in streams. Lake trouts live mainly in uh, very large lakes. Yeah. They kind of have like a soft body too. I've held in the Great Lakes, both the lake trout and some of the different salmon. And when you get lake trout, they definitely have a different kind of texture as well, it seems like. Right. They, yeah. They're all soft raid fins. There's no spiny like a bass or anything like that. Sometimes they're exclusively the only fish in the lake, which means they eat a lot of insects and they also are partial to each other sometimes. So lake trout, more or less, they live in the deeper parts of the lake. They like cold water year round. They're not really good at temperatures much above the 50s Fahrenheit. Probably the Great Lakes are the southern extent of its range. Many smaller lakes up in Canada have rather large lake trout populations, and sometimes they're exclusively the only fish in the lake, which means, you know, they eat a lot of insects and they also are partial to each other sometimes. More or less, they they live in the deeper parts of the lake. I was talking with a guy recently who does a lot of fishing up in Great Slave Lake. And yeah. what he was telling me about the lake trout that I thought was interesting was he's telling me that there's these different forms of them that you find and that you'll find them in different places. And yeah. so I'm curious, are these just, is there just a lot of variability within the lake trout or are there actually distinct forms or subspecies that you can find? There are distinct forms or subspecies. And here at the hatchery, we raise several different, we call them strains of lake trout. We actually used to raise two uh, what we call deep water upper lake strains from one from Lake Superior and one from uh, Lake Huron. And they can live at like 500, 600, 700 feet and they spend most of their time down there. They'll come to the surface to feed. Then there are some shallower water strains of lake trout and they lived in Lake Erie until they were extirpated. They also lived in Lake Ontario and in Seneca Lakes in the Finger Lakes region. They're small lakes, but fairly deep. And they had lake trout populations. And we actually raised some of those. We raised one that's called the Seneca Lake Wild Strain, which came originally from Seneca Lake, one of the Finger Lakes in New York. And we also raised a strain called the Lake Champlain Domestic, which actually was a Seneca Lake strain that was released to supplement 
the fishery in, in Lake Champlain on the New York-Vermont border, and it became pretty dominant. More or less, almost all the fish there, when you genetically type them, they come up very close to the Seneca Lake strain. There's a deep-bodied strain, and then there's what they call the lean strain. Leans in the fats, is that right? <laughs> well, they're, they're, I mean, it's not that. They're skinnier. They're longer and skinnier than the deep water strains are. Um, and they actually are uh, better in the deeper waters than the, the heavier bodied strains are. What What's causing these different strains to kind of form? Or is there something in their habitat that's kind of parsing yeah, them out it, or what's it, happening? It has a lot to do with the habitat in the upper Great Lakes, Lake Superior in particular. It's the deepest of the Great Lakes. And they actually are better adapted to, to living in that deep water environment. And they more or less separated from the other strains of lake trout because of their habitat where they set up and where they fed. And they feed a little bit differently too, probably a different species of fish that they feed on. And then the other shallow water strains, they tend to, of course, be in shallower waters. Lake Erie is a shallow water. Lake Ontario is has a lot of deep water, but it also has a considerable amount of shallow water. Those strains actually do well in those two lakes. And dependent on which strain we've seen historically does better based on stocking information in our tagging program. The state biologists that actually run the programs on those lakes, they will request different strains and different numbers of, of each strain too for stocking because they'll notice things like their survival is better or their survival might not be as good, but when they reach adult size, they produce more young than the other one, other strains. They're more attuned to, you know, the, the spawning shoals or putting their young over good cover or that sort of thing. Speaking of producing young, these deep water strains, are they always down deep water? Or do they have to come shallow to spawn? Because I imagine that the larvae have to at least get up to the surface to fill their swim bladder at some point, feed on more planktonic sort of feeds. Is that the right. case? They, they will migrate up. But lake trout, really, they tend to stay towards the bottom. They tend to feed a lot on bottom critters, things in the deeper water or the midwaters. When I was working in private consulting, we were looking at some lakes up in Canada. And surprisingly enough, they ate almost all flying insects. I mean, their stomachs were just chock full of them, but it's much colder up there. And when the insects would try to drop their eggs in the water, the lake trout would come up and, and chow them down. They started out as aquatic, as larvae, but then they would become adults. And then they, you know, the, you've seen pictures of the swarms of insects up in Canada and probably up in Alaska too. They're just, they're unbelievable. They're keyed in on that. I know these are long-lived fish and you mentioned their spawning shoals. What do they need to have their best life in the Great Lakes? They need that rocky cobble on the bottom that they'll spawn over and that their eggs can go and get down in and actually be protected from predation. Their eggs are quite large and a lot of other fish like to eat them and they need to have a little bit of a flow, a wave action. Water not too deep is probably a little bit better because you still get some of those convective currents that come down and will keep those rocks and clean and keep that area oxygenated. So those are the sort of things that they're looking for. One thing interesting that we've noticed is that they'll actually use streams. And this is something that we found out when we were working on Lake Ontario. 
And in particular, they seem to really like the Niagara River. And we've actually hmm. found some natural reproduction there. And that's something that we really didn't know that they would do before to that extent. And also based on some of the stocking that we did in Lake Erie in Ohio, where they actually stocked them from shore right off a of stream, they developed a fishery in the fall of the year where the lake trout said, hey, this is a good place to be. I'm going to come up here and spawn again. <laughs> so, so they're probably less selective to to staying in the lake in the deep water than what we had originally thought. And we've borne that out with some radio telemetry studies too. So the Great Lakes, there's been a lot of changes that have happened there in the last couple centuries. There's been commercial fishing. There's been introduction of non-native species. How have those affected the lake trout and how are they doing today? Well, the... Probably the the biggest impact on the lake trout initially was the uh, commercial fisheries. And and that was back during the turn of the last century. There was a a considerable fishery and they were a prized fish. And there was a a lot of fishing pressure on them. They caught a lot of them. So that, that was the first knock that the populations took. In order to recover them, of course, many places we don't have commercial fishing anymore. As you mentioned, there were invasive species that came in. And the first one that came in back mid-century, last century, was the sea lamprey. I dealt with them when I worked on the coastal areas, and they actually have a positive benefit. They're an anadromous fish. They come in and they go into the streams, and they're snake-like, okay? So yeah. they'll actually get into the gravel when and they clean it up, and they mix it up, and they yep. get rid of the sedimentation which is good for them, but it's also good for the other species that come in behind them. And then when they're young, you know, hatched to smaller fish from possibly the year before, they're just as tasty as anything else. So they, where they evolved in the ecosystem, they weren't necessarily a nuisance or a problem. The way that they got into the Great Lakes is they built the Welland Canal in Canada in order to get ocean freighters up to the upper Great Lakes to do things like take the iron ore out and then also to bring some products from Europe and from other countries. They didn't anticipate at all, of course, that there would be any sort of a problem. It was a a great way to move ships. When they actually built dams, they made the water deeper and calmer and easier for them to get up. So they probably increased the numbers that came into Lake Ontario and then eventually into Lake Erie through the canal system. Once they got in there, they adapted to stay freshwater. They didn't have to go back out to the ocean. And and there was no natural predators and and nothing co-evolved with them. And they decimated several of, of the lake trout populations. We worked with the Canadians and both the U.S. and Canada realized this was a, you know, a problem, particularly for lake trout. And we worked with them and developed what eventually became the Great Lakes Fish Commission. And their first charge was to eradicate the sea lamprey until they realized that that was not very realistic. (laughs) Once the cat's out of the bag, the cat's going to run. But they have developed ways to to, uh, control them and keep their numbers down to the point where we figured that it was a good chance to restore lake trout, that they would have a chance and we'd be able to get self-sustaining populations going again. The second one that caused a problem for lake trout, of course, were zebra mussels, which got in and messed up a lot of the habitat, a lot of that nice cobble, gravel, spawning shoals and things that were out there became totally covered with 
with uh, nice. zebra mussels. They also feed on the larval fish. The mussels would take them in. So that was an impact also. And, and then when the zebra mussel population started to die off, their shells, of course, crush up pretty small and create almost like a sand. And of course, that fills in that cobble substrate. In addition to that, there's another species not native to the Great Lakes that impacted the lake trout. And that was elwife. Yep which is a, mm-hmm. a species that lives in, in the marine environment and they're anadromous. They go upstream to spawn and, and their life cycle used to be in the ocean, but they'll live it just as well in a great lake because it's a, just a freshwater ocean to them and rainbow smelt. And the problem with those two critters is they taste good, but they have a chemical in their body called thymonase. And what that does is that breaks down thymine and thymine is a very important element for egg development and also for early fry development. So they were impacted by that. We're looking at restoring a native species, which filled that niche before the lake trout demise. And that is the corgonids or corgonine species, which are related to the white fishes and they don't have the thiaminase. So we're actually raising them at the hatchery too and stocking them into the Great Lakes to try to recover their populations. Yeah, so there has been tremendous change in the Great Lakes with all those species you mentioned. There's also salmon from the Pacific Northwest that have been stocked. Right. Um, Yeah, it's really neat to get a picture of what something was and what it is today. So you mentioned those whitefish the forage base for these fish. That's neat. You guys are working on kind of all the different facets, like all those issues that are impacting the fish. Once we reestablished a small population of of lake trout, we said, okay, let's observe them and see what happens. And that's how we ended up learning a lot of these other issues that have come up over the years from things that we've unknowingly to the Great Lakes. You know, What's being done with the reefs? You mentioned the mussels and how they've, you know, created sand through degrading yeah, and filling those yeah. spaces like They're, what's the what's the process to restore those reefs for the fish they're clearly the latest thinking is to actually potentially look at creating shoals from rubble that came from either demolition of concrete and and then putting that down in the water and creating these shoals habitat for spawning and possibly actually cleaning the substrate with some sort of dredge that would bring up the fines, but actually leave the larger material there, which is the important material for spawning habitat. And we're learning a lot. They've done radio telemetry studies on lake trout, and they found out that they will spawn on just one side of a rocky shoal. And why is that? That's because there's wave action that keeps that side clean, and their young will survive. They found out that they need to discover these places and be able to start utilizing them in order to be able to create a sustainable population. And we have had some success in that area. So, How do these fish what? fit into the public psyche out there compared to some of the other fish in the Great Lakes? Like, are they a, a popular fish? Are people pretty interested in them or kind of where do they fit? Well, they have a mixed fan club. Yeah. They used to be the most popular sport fish in the lake when before they their numbers had dropped down. Reestablishing them, you know, there's there's mixed feelings about that. Some people like the Pacific salmon. <laughs> so they say it tastes better, it fights better, that sort of thing. And they're both in the same environment. But interestingly enough, everybody likes a lake trout when they have it on the hook. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So I've read somewhere that one of the subspecies of lake trout is called Siskowet, and that that name comes from an Ojibwe word that's the same actually as si- the same root word as Cisco, and it means that with an oily body or that, like that with oily flesh. Right. Have you ever eaten a lake trout, and do you think that that description is accurate? Yeah, I have, and they are pretty oily as far as fish goes, but you know that oil's not a bad thing. It's actually good for you. <laughs> it's all in the way you pr- prepare them. And the way that I've had them that I enjoyed them is you actually bake them and a lot of that oil comes out and lays in the bottom of the pan. Another way that almost every oily fish that's out there has been prepared historically is to to smoke them. So people will smoke them and that smoking process, that long, slow heat tends to remove a lot of that oil And actually, the oil keeps the flesh very moist and tender. So people enjoy that. That's that's another way that I've had lake trout that I really like. Nice. So working at the hatchery, what's the yearly cycle like? We used to have our own brood stock here. And a brood stock is just adult fish that you can take eggs and sperm from and then fertilize them. And that's how you begin your production. In order to keep the fish wild, we only hold our brood stock for six years. They only start spawning when they're about six years old. So we have them until they're about 12. And by that time, they're about 10 or 15 pounds. And then we need to replenish that stock. That actually starts happening way before that. In order to keep them wild, we only use brood stock that our first generation out of the lake. They'll go out to the lake, take eggs from wild fish, and then spawn those fish, then raise those up till they're about two years old. And then they would ship them to our hatchery and we would raise them until they become mature. And that way we always keep the strains wild and we always get the good genetic mix of the different strains that we want to have. You guys uh, clip the adipose fins so that you know that the fish you're harvesting yeah, that's, were wild and, then, and not hatchery? Yeah, so so now we don't keep the brood stock anymore here at the hatchery. Oh, okay. Unfortunately, believe it or not, although we use well water, our well water over the years has become gradually warmer to the point where it's the warmest right at the time when you take the eggs and it impacts the fertilization ability of the Mm. eggs. So we're only getting about 30% fertilization. We shipped them off to a hatchery that had spring water that stays in pretty much the 40s year round and they were getting 90%. So now all of our eggs get shipped in overnight via FedEx and they come in in styrofoam coolers, iced down, and we take them, we disinfect them because we don't know if they're, what kind of diseases potentially could have been at the other hatchery and can disinfect the surface of the eggs and it doesn't hurt the fish that are inside the egg. And we put them in incubation jars, which are just essentially tall cylinders with water that goes down to the middle, hits a concave bottom, and then causes the eggs to do a swirling action that keeps them moving and, and keeps them oxygenated. And also the nice thing about that is any day eggs that have died, they tend to get gas in them, they flow to the surface, and it's easy to clean them right off the top of the jar. And what's the incubation period? How many days usually? By the time we get them, and then there are probably another three or four weeks after that. But Oh, wow. So that's a while. But you can actually slow down that development. And we do do that because not all of the different strains we have all spawn at the same time. 
but it's always good to keep all the fish around the same size so they can feed them the same size food and things. Yeah. Right. So the early ones that we get in, we chill the water, we super cool the water and then use that water on them and it slows their development down. And then as the other eggs begin to come in after over the weeks, we'll gradually bring that temperature up. So we get most of the fish to actually hatch at the same time. And so that makes it easier for us. The, the, uh, and it doesn't impact the fish at all. Because then they're exposed to all different kinds of temperatures and the colder the temperature, like I said, it slows down their development. Then they hatch usually right around December or so, and they'll have a yolk sac. Before they actually absorb the yolk sac, we'll move them out of the jars and into our circular tanks that are in our raceway building. And they settle down on the bottom and they just kind of hang out down there having a free lunch off of their yolk sac until it's absorbed and gone. Do you have to remove them or do they just fall over the spillway of the hatching jar and they collect in the aquarium? Some of them do, but a lot of them just like to stay at the bottom. We'll actually siphon them out of the bottom of the <laughs> into a, into another bucket and then take that bucket and put place those fish into the, the other uh, tanks out in the tank. They'll maintain that yolk sac for a, a, a couple of weeks up to a month and then they absorb that yolk sac. And at that time, they begin to start to move up and we begin to feed them. Okay, we've siphoned out the larval fish, the sac fry. How big do you raise them before you then release them out into the wild? Once the sac fry go into the tank and they begin actively feeding, then we will feed them inside the tanks, which are inside our hatchery building. And we'll feed them until they get to be about two or three inches long. At that time, they're ready to go out to our raceways which are eight foot wide by 80 feet long. And they'll go into those and then we begin to grow them out in there. And that usually happens right around, I would say June. So by the September, those fish are big enough to tag. The reason we do that is um, to identify fish that have been stocked from a hatchery after they're caught and they've grown for a while in the lakes. You remove that adipose fin, which is that small fin on the back of trout species that is at the top, just in front of the, the little nub. Fin. And that, if you catch a fish that has that, you immediately know that's been stocked by the hatchery. And the actual goal, the way we tell how our progress is, is if the biologists go out there and they catch a group of lake trout and they begin to lurk, look through them and they start sorting through them. When 70% or so of them have an adipose fin, that means they weren't stocked by a hatchery, that they were naturally reproduced. So that's one of our, our targets to hit in order to know that we're starting to reach success. The other thing we need to do is to make sure that we have a good distribution when we look at all of the fish that we catch out there of different age classes of the adults so that there's no crashes in the middle so they can make sure you can keep the population going. And right now we're getting pretty good adult population, age class distribution, but we're not seeing the number of juvenile wild fish that we'd like to see, those fish with the adipose fins. So in order to maintain the adult population, the only way to do that is to continue to stocking. We're waiting for the day when we don't have to do that. In order to be able to identify that and get more information other than just the adipose fin, we do what we call coated wire tagging. Imagine a spool of wire with a real small number, you know, only a couple of millimeters printed on that wire and a very thin wire, not much bigger than your hair. And you can cut off a piece of that wire 
and it will have an intact, the whole intact number on it at some point. And that can be injected into the fish's snout, the cartilage in the snout of the fish, and it will stay with them for life. So what that number tells you is when that fish was stocked, what strain it was, and where it was stocked, and also its known age, because you'll know what year class it came from. So all the fish of a particular strain get stocked with the same number in 40,000 fish lots. And all those fish get stocked, all those 40,000 fish will get stocked at the same location out in the lake. So it gives us a lot of information and it allows us to actually be able to tell how well the fish are doing, what the mortality rate is. And there's all kinds of statistical analyses that I don't get to deal with, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I provide the fish. That's my job. And to get them, gotcha. get them safely yeah. to the water. That's cool. Ong ong, everybody. It's time for a minute with Maria. I'm Maria Dosao calling in from Chogyang Lands out of Dillingham, Alaska. I wanted to give a huge big kagasakung to Larry Miller from the Allegheny National Fish Hatchery for taking us on a deep dive inside what his hatchery is like. I really appreciate him painting us a picture of all the steps that the eggs have to go through in order to become livable fish in the lake system. I thought it was really fascinating how fragile the lake trout's ecosystem are in this area because of all the population density in this area and the pollution and all of the different infrastructures that have changed with the canal system and the invasive species. It's really a testament to how fragile these ecosystems are. So thank you again, Larry. I really enjoyed listening from you and I can't wait to hear more about the lake trout. When did you first get interested in lake trout? Do you have any stories from... Oh my! Kind of the beginning of your career as a, a yeah. Child. I was actually born in Buffalo, so Buffalo is right there by the Niagara River, and Lake Erie's right there at Buffalo too. And then you go down the Niagara River, and if you fall over Niagara Falls, you get into Lake Ontario. And I was around there, and then my father got a job in Dunkirk, New York, which is a little bit to the west of um, of Buffalo, right on the shoreline, and that's where I grew up my early years. We used to really loved the fish. We would go down to the end of the street, essentially is all we had to do. And we were right on the lake and we would fish for whatever we could catch. Most of the time it was freshwater drum. But at the time I'd heard about these lake trout from my uncle. He lived on the Great Lakes all his life. And he told me stories of the great big lake trout that he used to catch. And I got excited about it. I said, I wanted to catch one of those because I want to get a record or a trophy sized fish. When this lake trout sounds pretty good. I said, trout, right? Trout are good. We like to have one of those. But at the time that I was dreaming it and thinking of that, I didn't realize that on Lake Erie where I had lived, that they had been extirpated. So my chances of catching one were not very good. So it's kind of like a full circle type thing to get back yeah. working and helping to restore the species that I once had a dream of catching when I was <laughs> in high school. Yeah. Nice. Why should people care about this fish? It's a native species. It's also an indicator of the health of the lake. It's always been there. And it also will, will control bait fish species. I mean, that was one of the main reasons that when the lake trout got extirpated in these other invasive species like elwife came in, 
their numbers got so big that they would die off in huge numbers because there just wasn't enough to forage for them. And they would literally wash up on the shore. I mean, one of the things I did when I was in high school in Dunkirk was I I, I was a, a lifeguard. And I don't know how many times I had to close the beach because the beach was just totally littered with dead Elwise. So since the lake trout wasn't there to take care of that anymore, that's one of the reasons they actually started stocking the Pacific salmon to eat them. It would be nicer to have the lake trout take care of that. And the lake trout will go up and down with the populations as the populations of bait fish go up and down. I'll kind of chase it kind of like wolves and rabbits. Once we get it restored, that we can have that. It gives me a chance to catch that trout trophy fish that i've wanted to catch. there you go it's yeah, they get you. You know? so yeah. what, what's the cool. biggest one you've caught so far i probably only caught one like 15 pounds but the the record in the out of new york which was actually a fish that we had stocked when it was only like six or eight inches long it's 41 pounds wow oh, that's nice. kind of cool to yeah. have stocked that yeah it, a, and, it, and all all the records for new york pennsylvania and ohio have come from fish that we stocked that's a side benefit. I mean, we're trying to restore the population, but it's also providing a, a, yeah. an angler fishery too. Is there anything else we've missed that you'd like to to say or that we haven't covered yet? If you don't know what the canary in the coal mine is, when they were doing coal mining and they would go down into the, the, the pits where they would dig it or into the caves and tunnels where they would take the coal out, they would sometimes hit um, veins of, of natural gas or gas. And it's very poisonous and you can't smell it. There's no way to, de to detect it, at least not way back when. So what they decided to do was to bring in a canary in a cage and some and watch that canary. And, and if it died, they knew something was wrong. So what was that canary telling them? There's something wrong with the environment. There's something that if you don't take care of it, it's going to impact you. And you may be the next endangered species on the list. And I could imagine some big old burly, you know, coal miner who his boss said, you're taking care of this canary. You're going to watch it. and You're going to make sure you, you let us know as soon as you see something's up. So well, I'm pretty sure that the, the coal miner kind of like started to like this little bird and didn't want to just wait until it died. So it would observe it and it would see what would happen or what was going on and what type of behavior was this bird having. Like if a cat came into the room, what, how did the bird behave? You knew that there was a danger in the room and this is how the bird's behaving. And so his goal was probably to learn that and then let his boss know, hey, something's going on with the canary. I think that we got a problem. We should probably move or get out of here or take care of this situation. And that's really like the job of the Fish and Wildlife Service. We go out and we observe all of the all the animals that are in nature and we look for, you know, odd things, odd behaviors, things not going on, populations falling off, things that aren't working right. And we try to figure out what it is that why is that why is that happening you know and we discover things that we might be doing that could be contributing to that and that might need to find a better way or a different way to do that and that's kind of what you know the endangered species act is really all about it's not so much about gee you know who worries about if we lose a particular one species they go extinct all the time but no it's the canary the coal mine that's telling us something's wrong and we need to really pay attention to it before it goes too far. That's a good analogy. Thank you, Larry. Yeah. Super nice talking to you about Lake Trout and you bring a lot of good knowledge. So really appreciate yeah, you. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Sure, anytime, appreciate it. Thank you for yeah. allowing me to share some of the things that I think are cool about 
lake trout and catch yeah. me a big one someday. Yeah, I hope you do. <laughs> Thanks. We'll get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially the native fishes of the Great Lakes, like the lake trout. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of Communications. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. Do you ever uh, see that episode of The Simpsons? They're like digging a mine and the canary dies. They all rush out. And the doctor determines no. that the canary died of natural causes. So they all oh, no. back in. Well, that happens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I didn't, but I'll be looking for it.